And so if you still have your, your Bible near you, uh, you can turn to the book of Luke, chapter 7. Uh, we are working our way through the, the book of Luke, section by section. And over the past few weeks, we had been looking at a sermon that Jesus gave. Um, it's called the, the, sermon, the, the sermon on the plane, not a flying plane, but a, a level place kind of plane. Um, and if you look at, at verse 1 of chapter 7, it's almost, if you think of in a play where the lights go down and it, there's a change of, of scene and they pull things off and put new things on the stage. Uh, that's sort of what's happening here is it, is it transitions us from the Sermon on the Plain back to Capernaum where Jesus had been teaching and casting out demons and healing earlier in the, the book of Luke. And in this, this story that, that I'll read in a moment, we see this centurion, this person who stands outside the, of Israel, who is coming to, to seek help and, and healing for his servant. And, and it's interesting, you know, we, you just heard that Old Testament passage of, of this man coming from Syria to, to be healed in Israel by, by a prophet. And so there, there's this parallel between it of saying, okay, there's something in Israel and I'm going to go seeking help. But yet what the centurion finds is, is even more than just a, a mere prophet. So again, Luke chapter 7, and if you're using the Pew Bible, this is on page 863. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the authority that you exercise in the world, Lord, that you are present with us, you're powerful. And so we ask that you would, you would guide us in the study of this, Lord, that you would guard uh, me against error, against saying anything that, that's not true, Lord, that, that you would um, guide all of us and apply it to our hearts and our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So if you, if you hang around church very long, 
probably you'll hear the, the word faith pretty quickly. I mean, it's a word that we use quite a bit. It's used in the, in the Bible a lot. But with any word that we use a lot, it's important to stop and say, what does it actually mean? I mean, what does the word faith actually mean? And some people, I think, use the word as just a, another way of talking about religion generally. So you would say, well, I belong to the Christian faith, and you belong to the Islamic faith, or we talk about faith traditions, or I think other people will talk about faith as just a subjective inner feeling, where you would say, well, it, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you have faith, or, well, you have faith, and that's fine, but I have reason, or, well, you, you can't know for sure, you just have to have faith. Again, this subjective feeling. But what is faith according to the Bible? And as you think about that, this passage that I just read is, is really helpful for us because we see this, this Roman centurion, and you'll notice that Jesus commends his faith. Look at, at verse 9 in your Bible. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at the centurion, and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Now, in, in Scripture, in the, in the Gospels, we only hear about Jesus marveling at something twice. He marvels in Mark chapter 6 at the unbelief of Israel, at their lack of faith. And then here he's marveling at the faith of this Gentile who, who stands outside of the, the covenant community, this, this covenant outsider. And so if, if Jesus is marveling and saying, wow, I've not seen faith like this, anywhere else, then it's really important for us to, to go back and look and say, all right, well, what can we learn about faith if, if Jesus commends it so strongly? And really what, what I want to do is just look at three lessons about faith that emerge from this, this text. And this is the, the first lesson, that faith is saying, I can't do it on my own no matter who I am. And this is really what we, we see in the centurion here. I mean, we laugh sometimes about you know, men not being able to ask for directions, um, but GPS has totally solved that problem, thankfully. <laughs> uh, but the, the centurion on the surface seems like the, the kind of person who wouldn't want to ask for directions. I mean, he's a Roman official in the legion, it says that he is a centurion, and you might hear the word is, is related to our word uh, century for a hundred, so he, he commanded a, a hundred men in the Roman legion, and the legion was made up of, of 60 centurions. Uh, so he, he was powerful, he was rich, as we'll see, he was influential, he was respected in his community, uh, he, was, he was kind, he cared about his servants, he, he cared about the, the Jewish people. It says that he even expressed that care by building their synagogue in Capernaum. And that we see that in verse 5. And so this guy has a lot going for him. I mean, he is, he's a prime candidate for self-reliance because he just seems like a, a great guy across the board. But then even he is, is forced to, to throw up his hands at some point and say, hey, I can't do this on my own. And look at, at verse 2. He says, now, a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. 
When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And so this, this man, he has, he has power, he has influence, uh, but yet he can't confront the, the power of sickness, the power of death. He can't confront the, the power of, of human mortality on his own. But I think that, that unlike us, though, sometimes we're able to lull ourselves into a false sense of security where we think, well, really, I, I can do it on my own. I can, I can make it my own way. So we think, well, I can, I can overcome this addiction on my own. I can heal this broken relationship. I can overcome a, a persistent pattern of sin in, in my life. I can become the, the good person that I'm, I'm striving to be. I can overcome the, the sickness. Or maybe even on some level we think, I can overcome the, the power of death itself if I just eat well, I don't smoke, I do yoga and meditation in the morning and everything will be fine. We think that we can, we can find it somehow in ourselves. But I, I sincerely believe that, that eventually we, we, we hit some kind of a, a moment. Um, and it could be something small, it could be something big, where we're really forced to say, I don't think I can handle this. This is somehow out of my control, out of my power. And when we hit that, we can do one of two things. One is to just go to a place of, of depression where we just are completely down in the dumps because we think, I can't do anything, and we become hopeless. But then the, the other reaction is to say, no, I, I can't do it on my own, and so maybe I can look outside of myself for something or, or someone that is greater. And that's what the centurion does here as well, that he has heard through the grapevine about Jesus, that, that Jesus has this power to heal. He's been casting out, out demons. And there's a, a bit of speculation, but if you were to turn to John chapter 4, there, there, it talks about the, the healing of an official son. And it's in the same area that, that this miracle, uh, where this miracle takes place. Uh, but there's enough details that it almost feels like the same story. But it, it's not because it's too different. And, and so it's possible that, that he heard, hey, Jesus healed this official son. And so if he was able to heal this other person, maybe he can heal this beloved servant that he cares about so much. And, I, and it's the, the same for us, that, that rumors about Jesus and what he's done circulate in the world. They, they circulate even today that, hey, he can make a difference in your life. He can change you. He can heal you. He can transform you. And so we think, well, well maybe he could do the same thing for me as well. And as I was, I was thinking about this, I, I was talking actually to Jonathan Hatt's mom on Tuesday. And I think some of you maybe met her last Sunday when she was here. And she was telling me that on, on her car in, in Florida, she has the, the Hope uh, magnet. There's you know, some out there. Some of you have them on your, the car. And uh, she, was, she was driving, and somebody stopped behind her and was, was started just crying and was clearly really distraught. And so she got out and said, hey, are you okay? And, uh, and the lady was saying that because of sickness, she felt like she was at that point of you know, rock bottom of saying, you know, throwing up hands and saying, hey, I can't do this anymore, and she actually saw the, the hope, the word hope, and said, and looked and said, that's what I need, and that's those exact words, hey, that's exactly what I need, and so um, Jonathan's mom was able to, to share the gospel with her and say, you know, actually, there is 
hope outside of ourselves and somebody greater who, who has power to, to restore and to, to renew and give, give hope and life that's, that's rooted not in us, but in something outside of ourselves in his perfect life, death, and, and resurrection and, and the salvation that is secured as we, we repent and trust in, in Christ. And it's, it's the same for us, that, that when we hit that moment of, of, of darkness, realizing that we, we can't do it, then we can look outside of ourselves to someone who has proved himself over and over again. And, and the testimony to his, his power to change and renew and, and save is, we, we see it in the world today, we see it throughout history, we see it in, in the scriptures, and, and so we can turn to him. And that's really what, what faith is, and, and that's why that's our... The first lesson of faith that it's saying, I can't do it on my own, no matter who I am. But second, the, the second lesson is this, that faith is saying, I'm not worthy, no matter what I've done. And this is also what we, we see here in the centurion, that he, he knows that Jesus has the power to heal, and he wants to, to reach outside of himself uh, to, to go to him, but he says, hey, I'm not worthy. And so he goes to the, the Jewish leaders and says, can you go to Jesus and, and represent me <laughs> to him? Almost as a kind of a lawyer saying, you know, go in my stead, represent me uh, so that he will come and, and heal my servant. And these Jewish leaders willingly do it because in one sense you think, all right, he, this guy would be the, the enemy to them. Um, any other circumstance. I mean, this isn't the, the great liberating force, but, you know, he is a, they would say, this is a, a wheel in the engine of the military might of Rome. I mean, this is the, the external oppressing force that, it, that is putting our people under the, the boot of, of Caesar. But yet they, they know this man, and they, they know that he defies expectations, that he's, he's not anti-Semitic, that he's very pro-Semitic. Uh, look at verse 4. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, you notice the word earnestly, they're doing it from the heart, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. That's the first reason, right? He loves our nation. And the second nation, he is the one who built us our synagogue. And even for I mean, any wealthy person, I don't know in the first century what the financial investment would be of building a synagogue, but it was quite a lot. And to do that for another people, for people of, you know, probably he was raised in a different religion. Obviously, he was beginning to respect Israel, to respect the, the God of Israel. But really, the, the key phrase to notice there in what these elders say is, he is worthy to have you do this for him. So he, He's a really great guy. He's loving. He's kind. He's, he's generous. And so on the basis of how great he is, you really should listen to him and go and heal his servant. And so really they're operating from this, this framework of merit, where they're saying that Jesus is going to respond and is going to heal based on how good we are and the things that we have done. And so if you want Jesus to come and to help you, the, what you need to do is, is list out your moral achievements, the things that you've, you've done. But yet we see that it, it turns a different direction. I'll look at verse 6 as it continues. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, 
Do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. And we don't have all of the, the details here of why he sends the second group of messengers to, to Jesus at this point. Uh, but I, I think that it's probably something along the lines of this, that, that he heard, hears word back of what did these um, Jewish elders say about him. And they said, hey, he's worthy. He's really great. And, and he thinks, oh, no, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy for Jesus to come into to my home. That's not what I said. I didn't say for him to come to my home. I just wanted my my servant healed. So he sends this next group saying, you know, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. And you say, well, why would he think this? Why would he think that he's, he's not worthy for Jesus even to come under the, the roof of his house? Because in a lot of ways, I think he could have thought the opposite. And probably most people in society would have thought the opposite. I mean, because Jesus is poor, basically homeless. He's this rich, influential Roman. Um, Jesus was, was a Jew. He was a Roman. The Romans, you know, definitely put themselves on a pedestal above other people groups. Um, Jesus was a religious teacher. He was, you know, this powerful, strong, military uh, centurion um, that he would have thought that what he does is probably more important. But yet, he sees himself as unworthy compared to Jesus. And, and this is for three reasons. And I, So the first reason is that he, he, he realizes that he, he's a Gentile. Um, he stood outside the, the covenant people of God. And he, he respected the Jewish religion, but he hadn't gone all the way of, of being circumcised and being uh, ceremonially washed to actually become part of the covenant community. So he sees himself as, a, as an outsider. But then second, as a Gentile, he was also committed, considered ceremonially unclean. He, he, couldn't, he could be on the outside of the temple, but he couldn't go in and, and worship with other Israelites who within the temple. And it wasn't even allowed for a faithful Jew to come into his home and eat, that, that the, the Jew would be made ceremonially unclean by entering his home because he's so much in contact with unclean things and unclean people outside. And this is why if you read the book of Acts, when Peter goes and dines at the house of another godly centurion, Cornelius, it's a, it's a really big deal and shows down the, the breakdown of division between Jew and Gentile that comes through the work of Christ. But then finally, I think that it wasn't just ethnic and ceremonial reasons that he saw himself as unworthy, but it, it really was his sense of, of sin, his sense of, of moral unworthiness, that he had failed to, to love God perfectly with heart, soul, mind, and strength. He had failed to love his, his neighbor as, as, as himself, as all of us has. And, and even though other people would look at him and say, okay, he's better than your average centurion. He's better than your average person. He's done a lot. He knows deep down in his heart, I think as all of us should, that, that there's something wrong within us, that, it, that if, if everything we've said, thought, and done was, was exposed and, and, and put on display, then, then we're not worthy. And so then the, the question then is, 
do we today then see ourselves as, as worthy or unworthy? And if somebody w was talking about us, would we want to, to go with the, the, the elders and say, he's worthy, and say, yes, I really am worthy, or, or no, I'm, I'm not worthy? And I think that, that some of you might say, yeah, I think that I'm, I'm worthy, I'm, I'm good, I've done a lot of good things. If you were to, to come before God and he said, hey, why should I let you into heaven? You, you would want to list your, your moral resume. Here are the things that I've done. Here's what I've done to make myself worthy, to recommend myself to your favor. But that's not what the centurion does here. He, he doesn't say, hey, Jesus, come into my home because you know, I really care for my servants. Or come into my home because I really love the Jewish people. Or I've been so generous. And, and look at that synagogue. It's so nice. It's so big. It's so fancy. Um, and I paid for that, so I am worthy. But instead, he, he confesses his unworthiness. He has the exact same reaction that Peter had back in Luke chapter 5, where he said, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. Or Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, who says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Or King David, who said, Against you and you only have I sinned and, and done what is grievous in your sight. And, and so this is the, the reaction of, of faith to say that I'm, I'm not worthy. And there, there's a really great hymn, and maybe we'll sing it at Hope sometime. But one of the lines in it is this, that all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Right? All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And that's the, the great strange counterintuitive paradox of Christianity that, that if you come and say, I'm worthy, I'm good, I, I've earned your favor, here's my moral resume, then that's the thing that makes us unworthy. But if we come and say, no, I'm, I'm unworthy, there's nothing I have done or, or could do, then uh, strangely that, that makes us worthy, but, but not because of, of ourselves, but because that unites us to Christ and we, we're sharing his life and, and righteousness and, and instead of marveling at, at our, our works, maybe the reaction of, of Christ would be what he says of this, the centurion, that not even in Israel have I found such faith. So we said that, that faith is saying, I can't do it on my own, no matter who I am. It's saying, I'm not worthy no matter what I've done. But then finally, and this is the, the last lesson on faith from this text, that faith is saying, I'm trusting in you, Lord, because of who you are. Look at verse 7. The centurion says, Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers unto me. I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And so, you know, it's interesting. He, he starts to draw this analogy from his own profession to the identity of Jesus. And he says, all right, as a centurion, I am under authority, that I am under the authority of, of Caesar. And so the authority that, that I wield in the Roman Empire and within this, this legion is not my own authority, but the, the authority of a, of a greater power. So my, my men listen to me because I, I am under authority and therefore have authority to, to wield 
here, not from myself. And by analogy, he's saying, Jesus, you also are someone under authority, that you are under the authority of, of God himself. And therefore, you can, can wield the authority and the power of God, not just over a hundred men and an army, not just in one part of the, the world called the Roman Empire, but over all of, the, of creation, because you're under the authority of, of God himself. And I don't think that the centurion here has you know, developed theology, understanding of God, a developed Christology, understanding of, of Christ, but yet I think he has these um, important insights into three important doctrines about God and, and Christ that he sees just in, in seed form. And, and the first doctrine that he has insight into is, is the doctrine of the Trinity. The, the, the Bible teaches that, that Jesus is he's fully God, he's fully man, in one person, and as God, he's not subordinate to the Father. He is equal to the Father in, in glory and in power. Um, he shares in everything that it is to be God, though he eternally is begotten of the Father. But yet, in the, in the accomplishment of redemption, as Jesus takes on himself a, a human nature to save us, that he willingly, willingly submits himself to the authority of his Father. And, and this is exactly what he, he says. He says, I've come not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Or he says, you know, I speak not on my, my own authority, but on the authority of my Father. So, so he, is, he is under authority, but that doesn't make him less authoritative uh, in, in, or, or minimize his authority, because Scripture says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And so, so he wields the, the full power and authority of God over all of, of creation as the Messiah and as the, the second person of the, the Trinity. So he sees the, the doctrine of the Trinity, but then also related to that, the centurion has insight into the doctrine of God's omnipotence. You know, that's a word you don't use too often, omnipotence. But it's really just a way of saying that God is, is all-powerful. There's no limit to his power. His power is, is infinite. And, and so he can do whatever he desires that's according to his, his righteous and good character. And that's what the centurion sees here, that, that you have the power over the laws of, of nature. You have power over death. You have power over sickness. You have power like no one else, that it is unlimited. But then the, the final doctrine that, that he has insight into is, is the doctrine of God's omnipresence, that, that God is, is present everywhere, that he's not limited to, to one place. Um, and, and we see this because the centurion says, you don't have to come to my house to heal my servant. You know, maybe that's what a, a normal prophet would have to do. Maybe that's what some sort of a, a phony charlatan would do who has to you know, use certain uh, remedies to try to give the appearance of healing. But because he's under the authority of God, that, that power is not restricted to just where Jesus is, but the authority and the power it can be displayed anywhere in the world, and there's, there's, there's no limit. It's, it's completely infinite. 
And that's so different from any kind of power and authority that, that we know in the world, because all our power is limited. I mean, think of even the most powerful king. There's still a limit to his power in the end, and, and there's a limit to the, to the sphere of his power, that there, there's a place where you go outside the border of his authority and he no longer can tell you what to do. But it's not that way with God. And, and that's what we confessed, actually, in our, in our confession of sin from the, the book of Psalms uh, 139, where it says, where can I go from your presence? If, if I go to the heights, Lord, you're there. If I go to the depths of the sea, you're there. Which, if you think about it, in one sense, it's terrifying. Because God is there. He knows everything. He sees everything. But if he is favorable towards us in Christ through his son, then it's also so comforting to know that, that he's there, that we, we can't, we're not going to end up at some place where, where God can't be there to help and to, to save. And I think that what this shows then is that our faith, the idea of faith, it's not disconnected from theology and from, from content and things that we actually believe about Christ, that, that we have faith because of who he is and what he has done. And it's the same for the centurion, that he has faith in Jesus because he has authority of God himself, because he has power to heal, because that power isn't limited to one place, but is everywhere and can be exercised in God's sovereignty. And so then it, it's not a leap into the dark, it's not blind faith, but it's this, this faith that is this act of saying, I'm abandoning hope in myself. I'm saying I'm not worthy. I'm looking to somebody outside of myself, and I'm going to, to trust in him and rest in him because he is powerful, he's loving, he's just, he's, he's faithful in everything. And so he can actually be there for us. And that's why the, this, the, the, the character of God is the most comforting, practical thing in the universe. Because God is powerful. He's all-powerful. He's present everywhere. So if you're struggling with sin or depression late at night and you're by yourself, you can call out to God because he's there and he's actually able to help because he's powerful. And God is all-powerful. He's present everywhere. So there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That he's able to do that because he is powerful and because he is present everywhere. And we sing often in the song Christ Alone, No power of hell, no scheme of men can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns and calls me home. And so, again, because God is, is powerful, he's present everywhere, we don't have to fear the moment of death. We don't know who's going to be there. We don't know what's going to be there. But we know that, that God will be there in all of the fullness of, of who he is and his power and his love and his authority and his, his mercy to guide us from this life into the next. And really then, this is why faith is so important biblically. Theologians call it the, the instrumental cause of salvation. Um, and, and that's just it's saying that we're not saved by faith itself. <laughs> but faith is not a, a thing that exists in the world. But, but we're saved by the, the, the object of our faith, that we're saved by, by Jesus Christ. He is the one with strength and power, and, and we're, it's his power and strength that brings us into, into life and, and hope. 
but that it is, it is faith that is the instrument that, that unites us to Christ. And, and so in union with him, then our, our sins counted to him, his, his righteousness is counted to us. And, and so there, there we, have, we, have, we have hope. And, and so when we come before God, then we're, we're not saying, God, look at the things that I've done. And, and, no, and that's not what Jesus points out in the centurion. He doesn't say, yeah, he's really loving or he's really good or he gave a lot of money, but he, he marvels at his faith, this, this humble, simple faith that says, I can't do it on my own. I'm not worthy, but yet I, I'm trusting in you because of, of who you are and what you have done. And really that's what we see here symbolized and, and sealed for us in this meal is a picture of the, the Christ in which we are trusting. Um, that that we're, we're not trusting in faith, but we're, we're trusting, putting our faith in the, the second person of the Trinity who, who loved us enough that he, was, he came, took on a human nature, lived the perfect life we couldn't live, died a sacrificial death in our place, rose again, offers us life and, and hope. And so our response is to say, I trust you. I'm not trusting myself. And, and Lord, wherever I'm not trusting you, please make me trust you more. And so he, he uses this, this meal to, to strengthen our, our faith and our, 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 our reliance on him.